Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, John is joined by Chip Connolly, who built the world's largest boutique hotel chain to 3,500 employees. But after a near-death experience, Chip realized he wanted out. Chip went on to become Airbnb's head of global hospitality and strategy, where he mentored co-founder Brian Chesky. Chip also co-founded MEA, the Modern Elder Academy, the world's first midlife wisdom school. Now, as you're listening to today's episode, I'd like you to approach this with two perspectives in mind. First, Chip is an amazing entrepreneur and had an outstanding exit that we're going to talk about. Next is Chip talks about how to reinvent yourself after you sell and how to find purpose. And in case you want to skip this second part, I'll note that Chip made more money as a mentor for the Airbnb CEO than he did ever as an entrepreneur. Here to tell you his full story and share with you his insight is Chip Connolly. Enjoy. Chip Connolly, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, John. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's yeah, it's so good to have you. I, I want to split this conversation into three parts. You've got such an incredible backstory. We're going to get to Modern Elders Academy. I'd love to talk about your experience uh, at Airbnb. Before we do, though, let's jump into Joie de Vivre. I, yeah. I would love to hear how you got into the business of boutique hotel, uh, the boutique hotel space. Tell me about yeah. it. Yeah. So I uh, went to Stanford University undergrad and um, was focused on commercial real estate. And then I went to Stanford Business School straight from undergrad. And that's where I met Seth Godin. We were the two youngest people in our Stanford Business School class. And we became very close friends. And um, we, from there, I decided to go work for a real estate developer in San Francisco. While I was working there, I was bored. I, 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 I wanted to do something more creative and something that felt a little pioneering. And this was the mid-1980s, and uh, boutique hotels were just getting off the ground in North America. And um, so I decided that, you know, on my 26th birthday, I was going to create a, um, a business dedicated to uh, creating joy of life for people. I, so I called the company Joie de Vie, means joy of life in French, which if you're Canadian, you probably know that. Um, yeah. And, you know, I was off to the races for 24 years. Um, Operating that company as the CEO, growing to the second largest boutique hotelier in the U.S., with 52 boutique hotels, all of them in California. And we had restaurants and spas as well. Such a cool... And I would... I. I think I stayed at an Ian, Ian Schrager hotel early in the boutique. So they that was yeah. a similar model or yeah, yeah. So Schra- your brethren, so Sh- to speak. Schrager and Kimpton were the two first. And I was like the I was like their younger brother. Um, but soon after but, them. But, but a similar concept. So folk, if oh, folks yeah. have stayed in the boutique hotel, they yeah. can kind of visualize it. Um how you know, you're you, how big did you get this business before? Mm. Uh, you decided to sell in terms of either revenue or number of employees or how, whatever proxy you want to use yeah, for your side. So we had about 3,500 employees. Uh, we were a combination wow. of ownership of hotels as well as the management of them. So I owned Joie de Vivre, which is the management company and brand. And yeah. then of the 52 hotels, 22 of them I owned with, actually 24 of them, I owned with other partners. So I, I wore two hats. Um, 
we wore the hat as the management company and brand. And then I wore the hat as in almost half of them, an owner. Um, and so 3,500 employees was in the, uh, the brand and management company because all of the employees in the hotels, restaurants, and spas were employed by the management company. Um, we grew to about $250 million in revenue, um, a little higher than that. And um, yeah, I sold it you know, in 2010, but it, at the bottom of the Great Recession. So it was hard, to be honest with you. I loved that. I loved working there. I loved working there. I loved running the company. I loved all of the challenging cha things that are true for an entrepreneur. But I went through two once-in-a-lifetime downturns in the same decade. Uh, the dot-com bust in 9-11. And I, you know, we did really well during that time, even though the San Francisco Bay Area, which is where most of our hotels were, well, was really hit hard. Um, and I wrote a book called Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow as a result of that experience. And I felt a bit like a gladiator. And then uh, we went into the Great Recession. And um, I felt the opposite. I felt like a prisoner. So for going from gladiator to prisoner. And there are a lot, was, of, there are a lot of reasons for that. But you, go ahead, John. I was going to say, what was the difference? You know, the difference was I, first of all, I just didn't want to do it anymore. And that was the hard part. It's like, okay. Um, I had been, you know, when my book Peak came out, it was my third book. It was became a bestseller, and I was giving a lot of speeches, and lots of people wanted me to consult. And I was like, oh wow, this is like sort of a nice thing to do on the side, but it was starting to dominate my life, and it was it was taking a lot of my passion. Uh, and I was so I had a little bit less interest in running my company, which with thirty five hundred employees was like that's a big company, and. Um, we were opening 15 hotels in 21 months um, at the start of the recession, Great Recession. So we were really in a challenging place. And, you know, when my heart wasn't in it anymore, but we were then in a struggling place. Um, and then I, you know, I had a long-term relationship ending. I had some family issues. Someone in my family was, you know, had a, had a legal issue that was uh, you know, concerning. Um, I lost five friends to suicide during the Great Recession. And then I had my wow. flatline experience. I, you know, at age 47, um, with a broken ankle and a septic leg, I was on a strong antibiotic and it wasn't working very well. So they put me on a different one. And after I was giving a speech in St. Louis um, about my book, Peak, I flatlined. And, um, you know, I didn't flatline until the paramedics got there. Thank God. If they'd flatlined earlier, they would have had to do whatever they do, but, you know, AED. But they, um, the, they brought me back to life with the paddles, and, you know, I flatlined nine times in 90 minutes. And so that was like the hotelier's wake-up call. So the thing that I thought I'd be doing till I was 80, which is this company that I'd founded and was CEO, and so much of my identity was based upon that business card, um, all of a sudden I was in a place where, I died and I was, I said, okay, you know what? Maybe it's time for me to sell. Maybe I'm supposed to get out of this. And of course it was at the bottom of the recession. So it was like not easy. So for the next two years, while nobody other than the top four or five people in my company knew, we went through a process of vetting potential buyers and, um, and ultimately sold at, you know, at, at, at almost age 50. And I was, what was interesting about that process it really, now that I um, coach and help lots of entrepreneurs who want to sell their businesses and figure out what's next, 
Um, thank God I had this experience because it really helped me to see where, what are some things you can do? What are some mistakes you can make in this process? And what are some upside things? And um, I think the thing that was really noticeable to me is during the two years where we were vetting who was going to buy it, what I'm going to do. And I was getting so comfortable because I had a, my best friend was a coach and she was helping me. I was getting so comfortable with the post Joie de Vivre era for myself that when it came, I was really ready. I, I was really focused on what am I moving toward as opposed to moving away from. So a lot of times when you're selling a business, it's like it's sort of like a form of retirement. You may not retire, but you're retiring from something. Mm-hmm. But the question is, what are you retiring to? And I was really clear. I had my, my, my top 10 list of here are the things I want to do when I have time back in my life, when I've got less stress, when I'm no longer CEO of this company. So instead of sort of having a big vacancy there, like, oh, my God, what am I going to do now? I was really clear what I wanted to do. I wanted to write another book. Um, I wanted. I was fascinated by festivals, so I wanted to go around the world and spend a year studying festivals. Um, I wanted to spend some time with some people in my life, family members who really needed my time, and I wanted. To, I just wanted to be with them and, and some friends as well. Um, so I really, I had some space, and I, I appreciated that. But I had some specific things I wanted to do too, and that, and that helped. Um, yeah. So that was, yeah, that era. That era of, of your life, an incredible tenure. You got to 52 properties that you both mm-hmm. owned some of them and managed some of them. So this was a 3,500. This is a significant business. Yeah. Listeners of this show will know that I always ask, what'd you get for the business? That was probably not necessarily what question that you were hoping to answer. But I guess my question is really, and it's, it's germane to the rest of our conversation. Mm-hmm. When you sold Joie de Vivre, uh, you know, did you make enough money that you never had to work again, that work was now an option as opposed to a requirement? And, and again, I, I hate yeah. to be so personal, but I wanted to, it's important, I think, for the balance of the conversation. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So um, I sold the brand and the management company, but I didn't sell any of the real estate. So um, I made enough money on selling the brand and the management company to feel comfortable. Um, If I'd waited four more years, it would have been worth four times as much money. Um, So at the bottom of the market, it it was not as good of a sale as it could have been. But I, I could have lived on that the rest of my life. Now, what made it more interesting is that I still owned a bunch of real estate. And over the next few years, the value of the real estate went way up. So if I could have lived on that too. So I had two different sources. I had, you know, the the payout that I had, which actually I, I actually only I sold 54% of the company, no, 56% of the company, and then a buyout over time with an increasing value. Um, and so the buyout actually made it even more interesting for me. Um, so, so because I, the 44% I sold was over time was a lot more worth more than the 56% was. Um, but, but ultimately the real estate ownership, you know, I own nine of those 22 or 24 hotels still. So I've sold a bunch of hotels over time and I made a a small fortune, you know, moderate sized fortune on that. Um, 
And, and then the next part of the story comes. And that, and that's when I made a lot of money. Oh my God. I know I normally wouldn't say that, but this podcast is already telling me like, this is like, this is about money. So I will say I, I made a fortune at, you know, in my role at Airbnb. Let's talk about that. Yeah. yeah I forget. It's, it's not intended to be crass by the way. Yeah, it's really just no. intended to understand, you know, uh, I understand. Because a lot of our a lot of our listeners will have some sort of liquidity event, as they say, some sort of financial transaction that makes work an option, which is why all of our conversation is so pertinent, right? Yeah. How do you figure out your next phase when you're not trying to you know, pay rent every every month? So yeah, this, this, no, no, no. This Listen, the stress around being an entrepreneur, where the financials are, you know, like you're not taking a salary for three years. I I've done all of that multiple times, so. I, I, I get it. Been there, done that. How did you come to work at Airbnb? Tell me the story of meeting Brian and, yeah. and how that all came about. So I sold the company at age 50 and around age 52, uh, Brian approached me and it was a tiny little tech startup, Airbnb was. Um, I didn't frankly know a ton about it. It was not that well known, um, but it was growing for sure. And Brian was getting a reputation as being a guy who really wanted to learn. Now, a lot of the Silicon Valley tech CEOs who are young have a lot of hubris, and Brian does too. But he also has humility, and he has a, a, a deep desire to learn that which he doesn't know. And so he approached me. He was 50, I was 52. He was 31. And he said, how would you like to help us uh, democratize hospitality? And I was like, oh, that's an interesting opening line. Um, and... I spent uh, four hours in the afternoon with him that first day. And I was like, wow, this guy is a sponge. He wants to learn. <clears throat> and so I agreed to work sort of like as a consultant and mentor to him uh, part-time. But within three weeks, I was like, oh my God, 15 hours a week became 15 hours a day because I realized how much they needed and how much I was intrigued. And so we changed the deal and I said, okay, I'm full-time. This is like, you know, this is a... This is, I'm, I'm clearing the deck on whatever else is on my plate. And um, I spent the next four years as the in-house mentor to the three founders. <clears throat> I was the head of global hospitality and strategy, but I oversaw a lot of different things in the business, but it was pretty much the sort of old gray hair. They, they called me the modern elder. Uh, so, and they said the modern elder is someone who's as curious as they are wise. It's like, okay, I like that curiosity and wisdom. Um, because I actually truly, uh, John, I was joining a tech company for the first time. I didn't understand tech lingo. And so it was a fascinating journey because there were times when I was a mentor and times when I was the intern. So I called myself a mentor. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it worked out well in the sense, on many levels, uh, financially very, very well, um, because we, I helped four years full time and then three and a half years as a strategic advisor taking the company up almost to the IPO. And bottom line is that, you know, the company went from this little tech company to becoming, you know, seven and a half years later, when during my time there, it became the most valuable hospitality company in the world worth over a hundred billion dollars. And <clears throat> I can say, you know, confidently, I did not think that think when I joined that I was joining a rocket ship that was going to be worth a hundred billion dollars. We were looking at ourselves and saying, you know what, because we actually, when I did join, it was worth two and a half billion dollars. So let's be clear. It was, it was, it, it, it had been valued, but, but everybody thought that was a way overvaluation. 
because it was the VCs sort of like doing their classic VC thing. And they're like, okay, mm. you know, it's a unicorn, but really like, is this, does, can this go mainstream? And that was really part of my job was to actually help provide advice, wisdom, and be like the secretary of state because Airbnb was disrupting the people and things. And so we were upsetting people. So part of my job was to like go and say, like, okay, let's, I'm going to go talk to corporate travel managers today. I'm going to go talk to the hotel industry tomorrow. I'm going to talk to, you know, uh, government entities who don't love home sharing. Um, so part of my job was to do that as well, along with some, a bunch of great other people in the company. Um, but my role was very senior because as the mentor to the founders, everybody knew that I had the, the founders' ears. And um, yeah, it was a, a beautiful experience. One of the things I would highly recommend for those of you who are out there who are thinking about selling a business is to actually ask yourself, how could you become the mentor to a young founder or a young entrepreneur? How could you become that modern elder? There's a need for it. You know, we have so many brilliant technologists and uh, young people as entrepreneurs, but how do you microwave their emotional intelligence or their leadership skills? And part of the way you do that is you surround them with people who have more experience. But the thing I had to do, which was an emotionally challenging thing to do, is after having been for 24 years the CEO of my own company, answering to really no one, <clears throat> how do I now operate as the mentor to these three and be the CEO whisperer to the three founders, but also not step in and try to become the CEO, like try to control things. I had to like really be open to giving advice and, and, and wisdom and guidance, but not like overstepping my bounds and trying to become the de facto CEO. I also was reporting to Brian. So my mentee was also my boss, who was 21 years younger than me. So how was that going to be? So I had, I really, I, how did you stick I had to right size my ego. I had to be confident that I had as much to learn from Brian as he did from me. Now, a lot of people couldn't do that. Uh, and it was hard for me at first. And it helped that Brian was as good as he is. I mean, here's a guy who went to Rhode Island School of Design never run a business before, frankly, rarely had a job before. Um, and all of a sudden, he's starting this little crazy startup and it's it becomes something. Now, he is, for three years now, has been the public company CEO of Airbnb. He is the only design of the, of the Fortune 500 companies, which is Airbnb is one of them. He is the only one who has a design background. <laughs> who is a creative, in essence, what we, what we call a creative. The only creative uh, CEO uh, or, or designer CEO on the, on, on the Fortune 500 list of CEOs. And the fact he still has his job with a company that has gone through the pandemic and everything else says a lot. And I'm really proud because Brian was good before I got there. He was a lot better <laughs> because I was there. And he has had the aptitude to just constantly learn more. And so I feel like a proud father. How do you, so let's, let me share with you, our listeners, many of them would be considering bringing in uh, a second in command, a general manager, someone to, to, to kind of be the, uh, 
the person that keeps the trains on the tracks, mm -hmm. the, the elder statesman, the, mm -hmm. the modern elder, so to speak, maybe a little gray hair to give the company credibility. What advice would you have for an entrepreneur considering hiring someone older than them to be the modern elder inside their company? Yeah, I, I think, you know, first of all, you, the rapport, the emotional rapport is incredibly important. There ha you have to come from a place of trust. Um, and I think with, with, what happened with Brian and me is that we pretty quickly saw that we had something to learn from each other. And that's the key. If it's one-sided, so either the young person or the older person sort of like ha has all has all the owns all the cards and has all the skill, then it's not going to be a very good relationship. It'll be a great relationship if it's symbiotic and my yin to his yang makes sense. We fit together. Like I knew something about leadership and emotional intelligence. I I knew EQ. Brian knew technology and DQ, so digital intelligence. And so we fit together really well in that way. So I think that's one piece. I think also getting really clear, I, I said to Brian early on when I screwed up in a meeting, like in the first couple of months, like halfway through the meeting, the leadership meeting, I sort of interrupted him and said, you know, Brian, I really think, you know, you should do the following. And it was in terms of how he was going to run the meeting, not in terms of a decision or anything like that. Like anybody in the room could talk about you know, how a decision you can make. But I was saying like, here's how you should run the meeting. So in essence, it was like dad stepping in. And so after that point, I realized, you know what, I'm going to mentor privately and intern publicly. So if I'm a mentor and an intern, I'm going to, when I need to give some counsel and guidance, I'm going to do that discreetly. And when I need to actually look like an idiot and um, ask really provocative questions, um, and sometimes be the dumbest person in the room, but the wisest one, because I ask a question that shows a blind spot, I'll do that publicly because I, I don't mind that. But the last thing I need to do is to make my boss and mentee, Brian, feel like he's got his dad in the room. And, um, and did he call you out on that? Um, he called me out, you know, uh, not in the meeting. Uh, afterwards, he did. And he also called me out. What did he say? He, he just said, listen, I mean, he was, he was upset. And he was upset because there was a sense that people are going to look to me in the meeting to be, you know, the person who knows how to run a meeting. Um, and, you know, he was right. He also was right when I, um, <laughs> in the San Francisco Chronicle, they had an article. For the first six months, we did not, we kept it embargoed that I was there. I mean, some people knew, but we didn't let the press know because we need to see if Brian and I could get along. Um, because like we didn't want the, because the press would stir things up like oh chips there chips can become the CEO and I didn't want to become the CEO and I didn't want Brian to have worry that like I'm just like sort of going to be clandestinely trying to take over his company. Um, so what was interesting was we got to a place where I just felt comfortable with Brian having a, a Saturday afternoon talk every week and we would talk about the relationship. Not just the business, but how our relationship worked. There was a San Francisco Chronicle article that came out um, that sort of announced that I was there. And in it, I made Brian sound like, in the article, in a subtle way, I made Brian sound like he wasn't ready to be CEO of the company yet. I never said those words, and the article didn't say it in, in that way. But it was enough that it, it sort of 
worried him that I was signaling that I needed to be the gray hair because, you know, he doesn't know what he's doing. And I didn't feel that way. I definitely felt like I was the gray hair, but I didn't feel like he didn't know what he was doing. I felt like my job was to be a wisdom accelerant, like to how to accelerate his wisdom. Um, so, but it, from there forward, I was really cautious about how I talked about Brian externally and mm. internally because, yeah, I didn't want to feel like I'm the training wheels on his bike. Um, yeah, some days, someday he'll be able to ride the bike, bike alone. Um, he had been riding the bike alone before I got there, um, but he wanted to ride a lot faster and he wanted to ride a bigger bike. And he wanted to ride not just with millennials on a budget. And part of my job was like, okay, how are we going to go after luxury travelers? How are we going to go after corporate travelers? How are we and so part of my job was to help mainstream uh, who our hosts and our guests were. You know, I just interviewed an entrepreneur literally yesterday. It'll probably be released after our interview today. But he's a successful guy, built a company over 18 years, sold it, made, made, a, made a bunch of money. But he's a young, young guy. He's probably in his 40s or early 50s. And I said, so what's up now? What, what are you going to do next? And, and he's like, well, I, I'd probably like to join a company. I don't necessarily want to own another company. It's been a stressful time. But I'd mm -hmm. like to maybe join a company. Mm -hmm. I guess I... I'd be imagining that maybe we have other listeners that are in the same camp. They're thinking of selling their company and following in your footsteps, joining a company. I guess, yeah. what advice would you have for someone thinking of doing something similar, well, joining a company as a yeah. modern elder? I mean, I think that, um, first of all, I think it's a great idea. <laughs> uh, it, it pays well in the end, um, but it, it doesn't always do that because I had another mentorship role with another entrepreneur and yeah, ultimately went bankrupt went bankrupt and and you know i i gave him good advice along the way but he didn't always take it and i actually didn't know how serious his financial challenge was because I, it was not a full-time role for me it was part-time and i was not like checking the books so th they don't always work out like my airbnb story so you so what i say here is that you better love it if you're doing it because you think there's going to be some big financial payout. You know, who knows? Small, young companies, you never know. Um, but if you're going to do it because you love the idea of learning and teaching both, I think it's, it, it, it's beautiful. Um, if you have a skill uh, that you can offer that is really meaningful for them, even better. I call this same seed, different soil. I wrote about this in my book, Wisdom at Work. The making of a modern elder. Sure. Same seed, different soil. You have developed a seed of your talent and your lessons and learning. That seed can be planted in new soil. So I was a bricks and mortar hotel guy, and now I'm in a tech company focused on hospitality. It's totally different soil, but I had the seed. And the key is to know um, there's a there's a term, you know, I, I'm a bit of an academic these days because of the school we'll talk about, the Modern Elder Academy. Mm. Um, and there's a there's a something that they talk, call environmental mastery. It's being able to, as we get older, understand which habitats we're going to flourish in. And I I knew so same seeds, different soil. So it's like, will I flourish? Will that will my plant grow in this new soil? I knew pretty quickly, and we, as we get older, we actually can better evaluate whether that's the right soil. I could evaluate that I would do well at Airbnb for the following reasons. 
Uh, I've never actually talked about this on a podcast, so this is fun. Number one is um, I was taking knowledge that I already had that they desperately needed. I joined the company when there were only 150 people. Not one of them had a hospitality or travel background. So they needed me desperately. Number two is that was the knowledge piece. Number two is they said they hired me for my knowledge, but two months later they said, but we, what we really got was your wisdom. What they also really needed from me was leadership, entrepreneurship. You know, how do you, how do you, how do you scale a business? So it wasn't just about me being a hospitality person. It was literally the, the, the bricks, of the, the details of how to run a business, build a culture, um, build a strategic plan. When I joined, there were 30 different strategic initiatives. Within three months, we got it down to four. Um, and so prioritization was really important. So I knew that, was, that gave me confidence. It gave me confidence that the person that I was going to be working the cl most closely with was the person in power, Brian. And he really wanted me there. And he, he wanted it to be a long-term relationship. Um, he also wanted to be a hospitality company when they grew up. So that helped. The culture of the organization, I felt strongly about. I felt like they, they had good roots of culture. I could, I'm really good at culture. That's something I've been, you know, that's what I did in my company. I've written books about, about it. They read, read my books and they said, like, we like the culture, your perspective on culture. So I felt like I was not having to uh, roll a rock uphill. Um, and then I think finally, I realized that I could adapt. You know, and I was in an environment where I could say I didn't know something. And the culture was allowing for that. Um, one of the first things I said to, to the founders is, you know, Airbnb and Uber are always in the same sentence. The two sharing <laughs> company, sharing economy darlings. Nobody talks about sharing economy anymore. But back then, 2013, 2012, like the sharing economy was a big deal. And it was all about sure. Uber and Airbnb. I said, like, you know what? Culturally, we are as different as that company as possible. And I worry about where that company's going. And, you know, I don't think we should, I think we should do everything we can to not necessarily be aligned with them. And we are going to, you know, they wanted to do a strategic partnership with us. And we said, we're not going to do it unless we do it with Lyft as well. And there was a lot I wanted to do is just like, let's segregate ourselves from Uber because culturally, I think that's going to blow up. And it did. And, um, Sim similarly, this is another story. WeWork, we were going to do something with WeWork. You know, I don't know when this is posting, but it's like they, they just went bankrupt. Um, Today or yesterday. Yesterday, yeah. yeah. And But I said to Brian, I said, like, Adam Newman seems like a smart guy, but he's also got a messiah complex. I mean, you've come back from meetings with Adam, and I've never met Adam, but I just have talked with Brian after he's had meetings with him. Because there was talk, we were talking about doing some kind of collaboration. Um, said like you come back and laugh. Like, do you want to do a partnership in some way with someone who thinks they're the Messiah? That's not going to end well. Travis at Uber is not going to end well, and neither's Adam. And and so I want you to end well, Mark, uh, Brian. I want, but I don't want us to align ourselves with other companies. And it's that kind of opportunity for me to speak from that place of intuition, wisdom, pattern recognition. And then to have the founder and CEO listen to me and take notice um, 
how can you not love that kind of habitat? Absolutely. So I say Let's yes, say yes, yes. Go, go, <laughs> go become a modern elder out there. Go do it. Go become a modern elder. I'm glad you brought up modern elders. So let's talk about Modern Elder Academy. Um, Describe how this got got off the ground. I've got lots of other questions about how it pertains to our listener, but just maybe contextualize it for folks who don't know what the Modern Elder Academy is. Describe it. So um, I decided to double down on (laughs) the term modern elder, which is, you know, sort of a fraught term. has some challenges with it because people think it's like modern elderly. I was a modern elder at 52 because I was twice the age of the average person, but I wasn't elderly, that's for sure. Um, I was writing a book called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder in Baja uh, in Mexico, where on a beachfront where I had a home. And I had a Baja Aha when I went for a run one day. I had an epiphany. <laughs> and the epiphany was like, why do we not have midlife wisdom schools for people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s to reimagine and repurpose themselves? Um, we actually have had people as young as 25 come to our program now and as old as 88. So it's not just people in forties to the sixties, but it's been like people at, at a variety of ages. And, um, so for six, for six years now, we've had, um, 4,000 people from 44 countries come to Baja to our campus to go through a one week or two week program. Most of the programs now are just five nights. Um, and it's been amazing because it's been, Everybody from uh, owners of companies who've sold, trying to figure out what's next, to um, someone who wants to change careers, they're not an owner, that they would just want to like try something new, uh, just someone who's getting divorced. I mean, so it's not just on the professional side. The, the things we focus on are how do you navigate transitions? Because nobody hmm. taught us like TQ, transitional intelligence. Secondly, how do you cultivate purpose, whether it's in what you're doing now or what you'd like to be doing? And thirdly is how do you own your wisdom? In essence, how do we help you to harvest, to, to cultivate and harvest your wisdom? <clears throat> because I think we're moving into an era where knowledge is commoditized. So the knowledge economy, the knowledge worker is like, you know, what, what is that? Everybody's a knowledge worker. And now with AI, it's like knowledge is everywhere. It's, but wisdom is scarce. And what's scarce is valuable. And human wisdom will be a great balance to artificial intelligence and human human wisdom is like ingenuity, intuition, creativity, empathy. Um, and how do you develop that in people? And so that's what we do in our programs. Uh, and we do it with leadership teams as well. So um, that's the part that's been surprising is we were a B2C company or a D2C company where people would um, book directly with us as, you know, for their own purposes. But the big surprise has been that um, leadership teams <clears throat> and peer-to-peer groups, especially YPO uh, and other peer-to-peer networks, um, book us for private private workshops as well. Uh, we have okay. a campus in Baja and then a campus in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Fascinating. We got a, we got a lot of YPO and EO folks listening yeah, to this. Yeah, a lot so of EO folks with us too. EO chapters. And Vistage, uh, yes. Yeah. And Vistage, interesting, yeah. interesting. So let's, let's unpack each of those three. So transitions. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the hardest things that entrepreneurs go through, and, and you've experienced this yourself, is uh, becoming the minority partner, uh, doing an earnout where they're no longer the owner, they're just a cog in a larger kind of wheel. How can entrepreneurs navigate this gracefully, this 
earnout period, or again, transitions for the entrepreneurs that we interview tend to take one of two forms. One, there's an earnout where they take a payment up front, and there's a three year kind of bogey they've got to hit. Uh, those often blow up. And also, there's another uh, where there's the quote second bite of the apple, which sounds like your experience as you ought to be, where yeah, you yeah. sell the majority, but you keep a minority interest. Yeah. And so there's this kind of ugly transition period where you're no longer the boss, but you're still being tapped for your wisdom. And it's ugly. It, <laughs> what it, can, it can be. Do? And I have to say that yeah. Aviv, it wasn't great. Um, the the um, It wasn't great. And why wasn't it great? Well, kind of when you've got the guy, me, who's been running the place for 24 years, didn't have investors and was answerable to really no one other than for the management company and brand, the variety of owners, partners I had or hotels that we managed and created hotels for. Um, the bottom line was like, I, I had my own quirky way of doing things. And um, the folks who bought us, I they said all the right things, but at the end of the day, they wanted to do it some things a different way. I was actually pretty easygoing for a lot of that. Where it was problematic is when I saw them not trusting and not treating people in, in my organization um, hmm. in a way that I felt like was respectful uh, and they were changing the culture. And as you know, creating a culture takes years and a lot of trust building and but it can get lost in a moment based upon just a few things and to have shed the tears and blood and not in taking salaries for years to create the kind of environment where <clears throat> people love that culture so you have a, a long way to fall when you have that kind of culture and when i know that from my perspective a great culture leads to happy employees loyal customers, growing market share, and then the lagging indicator of your success is your profitability. Um, and I taught the people buying, like, that's what we do. It's like, but what happened pretty quickly was like, uh, there was a different philosophy. So um, over the course of about two years, yeah, maybe three, three years, actually, I um, sold the remaining part of my interest. And I was just the executive chair. So I I didn't have an earnout. I, I could just sell shares based upon uh, a calculation, both a combination of you know annual growth, minimum annual growth in, in the valuation, or the higher of um, based upon performance of how the business was. But I was executive chair. I wasn't really performing the business. Um, I, what I did do that was smart, uh, beyond just holding on to the real estate and, and having that value go up, is I, I had somebody coming in to buy it that was going to grow the business pretty quickly and had the capacity to do that and had the sort of rationale. I won't go into the reasons of the rationale. So that I knew like, okay, this business over the next three years may grow a lot. And if it's growing a lot, then my remaining 44% interest is, is going to be growing. Uh, and so that's really what happened. And um, But it was ugly at times, yeah. Um, never ugly, like, like, off, like awful ugly. Like never like lawsuits, never shouting, never none of that. But ugly in the sense that I felt badly for my 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 leaders in the company who remained in the company. Now people got a payout. Um, we, we, you know, I was very generous in terms of payouts to people, and, and my top three people in the company all had shares in the company. 
Um, but still, you know, um, it didn't feel good. I'm, and my sister, who had worked for me for 20 years, was still there. And she was, she was putting up with all this. And so I was, I was hearing it from family members, not just from friends and, and coworkers. So if you were advising young Chip, on a similar transition, yeah. what would you tell him or her? To great them? question. Um, ultimately, at the bottom of the Great Recession, I didn't have a lot of great alternatives. I had three or four alternatives. The one that I chose was going to pay me the least. Well, that's that's not true. It might have like maybe in the middle. Well, there was one that was going to pay me more, but I then had to have an earnout and I had to work for somebody who I just didn't respect. I you know, just knew that was going to be terrible. And, and remember, the reason I was doing this was to get out of the handcuffs. And my, mm-hmm. my flatline experience taught me, like, I don't, I don't want to be doing this anymore. So money didn't matter. Um, so that was out. And then this one was a sort of sure deal. It, it was like it was a you know, high net worth person, a billionaire who was going to come in and buy the company, had knew about hotels. And I mean, it, 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 on the face of it, it looked good. There was another alternative, which we would have merged, you know, and I can, I can say it now, we were merged with Kimpton. Um, we were the second largest and they were the largest boutique hotel company in, in the US. Um, they, that would have made me less money. It would have actually potentially created a really interesting opportunity, potentially. But um, what I felt there was, it, it felt like Joanavive would have gotten completely lost. And, and at this point, Joanavive is still a company. It's, still, it's, it's called JDV. It's owned by Hyatt. Um, and, um, so it still has legacy, it still has history. Mm. Um, and I think that was important, but it, it probably, if I could go back and say like, you know, the best thing I could have done was just stick with it for four years and then sell it at that point for four times as much money. But if I'd done that, the Airbnb opportunity would never have come around because Brian would have just said like, well, I, this guy Chip looks interesting. Maybe he could advise, but he's stuck running his own company. So thank God I actually created space. So I think talent and people need to create empty space because empty space creates the space for this magic to happen. Well said. So that's transition. Super helpful. Mm-hmm. You talked a little bit about purpose and, and it's funny, we, we use some of the same vernacular. Uh, we talk about pull factors and push factors, push factors being the things that frustrate you about your business you want to sell, pull factors being the things that you're excited to go do next, which you work through with mm-hmm. your coach. I guess I'd be curious to know, um, for entrepreneurs who sell their company, I think it's fair to say there is a a roller coaster of our emotions. Yep. The most consistent theme I hear is sort of a and a, a huge up uh, and and peak when they sell, and the and the weeks after that is also euphoric. Uh, and then there's a, a huge trough, an ebb where they they lose a sense of who they are, a sense of purpose. Oftentimes, their name is on the door, like it's yeah. you know. You know, the, it's it's a huge loss. And so how do they reinvent themselves, find purpose after selling your company? So purpose is an interesting thing in, in North America. It's, it's seen as a possession. It's like everybody else has a purpose. I don't have one. It's like everybody has a BMW. I don't have one. It's seen as the noun, the purpose. And if someone doesn't feel like they have one and everybody does have one, there's like a, a FOMO. Fear of missing out, like, okay. So I think the thing to focus on is not the noun of purpose, but the verb of purposeful. 
What makes you feel purposeful? And that's the question to ask. And so know that the things that you tend to be purposeful about either excite you, agitate you, make you feel curious, or have some history in your younger life of something that you were intrigued by but didn't have time for. That's sort of like curiosity too. But so, so what I would say to someone who's coming, like if someone's coming to MEA and they have, they have sold their company, they're out completely, they feel really lost, not just because they don't know how to spend their time in the day, but they used to have a purpose and they don't have one now. So there's a big P purpose and there's a little P purpose. The big P purposes are the things that people notice and they're like the things that you, you know, that you're going to want on your resume. The little P purpose, though, in many ways are the things that are like create the sense of meaning in your life. Being a good father, uh, you know, doing something for the local community, being a mentor to somebody who is showing great promise, um, you know, becoming, learning how to play the guitar. There could be a small P purpose on that. So what I would say is just don't get wrapped up too much in the big P purpose. If you're looking for the big P purpose, um, focus on purposefulness. Focus again on like the things that excite you, the things that agitate you, the things you're curious about. So for example, I was curious about festivals, which is why when I took time off, having sold my company, I, I, I went and studied festivals because, and that was like my new passion. Because if you can find a new passion, it may lead you to purposeful, to, to your purpose. You know, uh, Airbnb came along just as I had started a new company called Fest 300, focused on the 300 best festivals in the world. And it was like meant to be a festival matchmaking site, uh, like how you find the festival that's perfect for you. And the truth is that I had to shut that business down when Airbnb came along because like I got, I got the new thing here. But um, and then finally, you got to go back to childhood sometimes. You know, I, we had a litigation attorney uh, in at MEA recently and she was so hard boiled and just so she was ragged. She like litigation, being a litigation attorney is just going to make you into an angry person and and a combative person. And she just didn't like who she was anymore. So over the course of a, five nights, five days together, she, you know, we got clear. Like She had, had a beautiful sense of purpose when she was baking pies with her grandmother when she was a teenager. And she, the thing that actually took stress off of her, like on a weekend, is she would go do some pastry cooking. So at the end of five days, she realized, I'm going to leave my profession. I'm going to have a partner in a, in a farm and I'm going to actually leave in a year and I'm going to go to, to pastry, become a pastry chef and I'm going to become a, I'm going to create a bakery. Um, and that's what she's doing now. Uh, and so sometimes you have to go back to the roots. She's going to sue your ass, Chip. She's going to be like, I'm making one-tenth as much as I made as a litigator. Well, she, that is true. She will make less. Uh, although she's pretty competitive. So I think she'll actually get a wholesale business around a baking out there. But she got, what she had to do though, John, is she had to get comfortable with the fact that she can make less. And it doesn't mean that she's got less value in the world. It just, you know, the, she had enough money in the bank to be able to do this. I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs. I think of one that comes to mind immediately that I know quite well, who I would characterize as inert. Mm. content, mm. but not super happy. 
Yeah. Like the business has gotten to a point where it's making good money. It's not that hard anymore. He's, you know, doing pretty well on external measures, but truth be told, it's not that fun for him. Yeah. And he's bored. <laughs> he's bored. He's, he's bored. Yeah. But, but, but he looks at the idea of selling and thinks, oh man, like, you know, like that's three year earn out and I got to get all my books to, you know, in place. And I got to get like, I got to get all these people around me to like, that's just a huge project. And like, things aren't that broken. So why don't I just keep going? And he's been saying that for, I want to say closer to a decade. So what advice would you give someone who's listening to this, who's got a biz, good business, but, but just doesn't feel fully alive? I'll give two pieces of advice. One is, um, what is it that you know now or have you done now that you wish you'd known or done 10 years ago? Think about that for a moment. And then 10 years from now, what will you regret if you don't learn it or do it now? The reason I say that is because anticipated regret is a form of wisdom. And for many of us who are entrepreneurs, we invest so much of our time and energy into our work that we are not able to put time and energy into other parts of our lives. And so imagining 10 years from now what you're going to regret and working backwards may give you some incentive and a catalyst to go out and learn it, do it now, uh, whatever that is. So that's a first point, which is sort of a, a very more emotional thing. On the financial side of things, like there's all kinds of things he, this guy can do. He can hire a CEO and be the executive chair and this and just run it and just keep and not have to deal with the taxes of like selling it and not have to deal with the you know the complications of someone else coming in he could frankly if he wanted to like create an earnout program for his employees where they could buy into it over time and get some long-term loyalty from them and make some money for himself doing that um, but still keeping a majority ownership um yeah, I don't know what business he's in, but sometimes if 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 it's doing well enough, he can he can write the rules of how he wants to sell it. He might make less um, by actually washing his hands and not having an earnout. Um, but you know, if 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 the business doesn't revolve around him, uh, unfortunately, Joaquim did revolve around me uh, in many ways. Um, then finding an, a a buyer who wants to just take it to the next level without him is possible. So good advice. I'll pass it on confidentially. Yeah. There's three parts of modern elders Academy that you take people through transitions, yeah. purpose and owning your wisdom. When it comes to owning your wisdom, I know a fair number of entrepreneurs who've sold a business and they're, experience atrophies. Mm -hmm. The half-life of their experience seems to be shorter and shorter as technology accelerates. And after three or four years on the beach or on the bench, so to speak, they become irrelevant mm -hmm. to people that they right. would like to advise or coach. Yeah. What, what advice do you have for someone who to, to own their wisdom without it becoming old and tired sounding? Uh, well, first of all, What's the practice that will allow you to even understand your wisdom? So let me tell you something I've been doing since age 28. I've been doing it for 35 years. Every weekend, um, I would come, I, you know, spend 20 to 30 minutes at home. And I ask myself, what were my biggest lessons of this week? And I will then 
create bullet points. I used to do it, you know, in a in like a journal, and now do it on Google Docs. And I'll write down like, okay, here is a personal or a professional lesson of the week. I'll write down what it was, and then I'll write down what the lesson is and how it's going to serve me in the future. And that practice of just spending twenty to thirty minutes of going through what my life lessons are. Your painful life lessons are often the raw material for your future wisdom. So wisdom is the metabolized experience of, of what you're learning. Most of us don't have a practice to understand our wisdom. But if you do, it accelerates your wisdom. And you, you are wiser more quickly. And I know 30-year-olds who are much wiser than 70-year-olds just because they know how to metabolize their experience. So that's what I would say. And if you do that well, it serves you, but it also serves, um, serves others. Because one of the things I do, I've done in all three of my businesses, Joie de Vivre, Airbnb, and MEA, is once a quarter, we'll bring our leadership team together and we'll say, what was your biggest lesson of the quarter? Hmm. And how is it going to serve you in the future? It's a very vulnerable exercise, but it's a really good one because we're sharing our best practices of what we've learned. And then we'll ask the team, what was our biggest team lesson of the quarter? And that's also really valuable. So yes, wisdom is a big deal. Uh, it, it, you're going to hear more about the wisdom economy in the next few years. I think so. And folks should check out the Modern Elder Academy. Where can people find out? What's the best website for them to check out? Uh, so MEA Wisdom dot com modern elder is meawisdom.com you can also go to my website which is chipconley.com and you'll see on there that i have a new book coming out uh, in january called learning to love midlife 12 uh 12 reasons why life gets better with age um there's even a quiz there on my website of the 12 reasons of why you get life gets better with age and you can take the quiz and figure out which of the 12 most resonate you or least resonate with you um and i'm on linkedin and i i have a daily blog called wisdom well uh, that's on the MEA website. And I post that on my LinkedIn profile. And so I have a very active LinkedIn profile if, if people want to sort of check that out. Fantastic. We've got a very active LinkedIn listenership. So we'll point to MEA Wisdom, chipconley.com, Learning to Love Midlife, the book and LinkedIn profile, all in the show notes at builtthecell.com. Chip, this was a Thank real you, treat John. for me. I enjoyed it as well. Thank you. And there you have it for today's episode between John and Chip. If you enjoyed today's episode, then be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to watch this full video interview, you can do so by heading over to our YouTube channel and type in at Built to Sell Radio. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including some of the more technical terms used, be sure to visit Chip's episode page over at BuiltToSell.com. Now, if you know someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on the podcast with John, I'd encourage you to nominate them. You can head over to builttocell.com slash nominate, where there you'll have a chance to nominate them. Special thanks to Dennis Lavataglia for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I'll talk to you again next week.